Welcome to The Sugar Science. I'm Monica Wesley, and I also have Rachel Geerling with me from The Sugar Science. And we are speaking today with Francisco Leon. He is the CSO at Prevention Bio. Welcome, Francisco. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you, Monica. Thank you, Rachel, for the invitation. Talk a little bit about uh, your career and, and how you got interested in type 1 diabetes. Absolutely. I am an immunologist by training. I was actually trained as an MD first and did my residency in clinical immunology. So at some point I was working in a hospital doing allergy tests and I was in Spain and Spain uh, has a bit of a different program for immunology than the US. It's a bit broader, less specialized. So we covered anything from allergy to immunodeficiencies, autoimmunity, transplantation. And actually transplantation is what got me into immunology because my mother had lost her kidneys to stones and her first transplant was rejected. And I was a, a teenager and trying to figure out why would her immune system reject a perfectly good organ, sending her back to dialysis. That was very impactful for me growing up. So I decided to become an immunologist to understand uh, immune tolerance, basically. How does the immune system determine what is self and non-self? And then the second question the immune system has to answer is, what is harmful and what is innocuous, what is not harmful. Basically, the immune system just does this two by two matrix whenever it encounters an antigen. And the answer to those two questions determines basically 80% of the remaining unmet medical need today in, in medicine. If you think about infectious diseases, it's excessive tolerance against an infectious agent. Allergy is insufficient tolerance against an innocuous antigen. Yeah. Um, transplantation rejection is insufficient tolerance to exogenous innocuous agent. Autoimmunity, insufficient tolerance to self, etc. Um, even in cancer, as you know, every day there are malignant cells appearing in our body, and only when they manage to become tolerized, when they express PD-1 ligand, when they express molecules that suppress the immune system and fool the immune system, that's when the cancer manages to grow. So I was amazed by immune tolerance because it seemed to me like if we could master immune tolerance, we could help so many people. And I specialized in autoimmunity. The reason for that was that the first disease where the antigen was identified in autoimmunity was celiac disease. T1D was basically second or third in terms of elucidation of the pathway, the HLA presenting antigens. In the case of celiac, gluten. In the case of T1D, insulin and other molecules, self-molecules. And then there's always some um, trigger event that turns that antigen presentation into abnormal and breaks tolerance. Yeah. Typically, infectious diseases are the reason 
for that tolerance loss. In the case of T1D and celiac, we believe that the virus called Coxsackie B virus plays an important role in tolerance loss. And that leads to tissue damage and that leads to complications and, and long-term symptoms and, and suffering. So I did my PhD in celiac disease, which at the time was not a very productive activity, so to speak, because it has never been the focus of pharma. It was purely uh, an academic and pursuit. That took me to the NIH, to the mucosal immunology laboratory to continue studying the gut immunology. And at that point is when uh, I realized that I was never a very good clinician and I was never a very good scientist either because <laughs> I was too interested in just helping people. And when you're a scientist, you need to be able to pay attention to the details and go really, really deep. And if you're um, interested in translation, it's, it's difficult to have the focus to become a very good basic science researcher. So I realized my forte was translation, was taking knowledge from animal models into humans. And the early development space was really where I could contribute. So I, I joined the pharma world, first at Bristol-Myers Squibb, where I joined the immunology oncology department. And those were the early days of checkpoint inhibitors, which back then were not called checkpoint inhibitors. They were called um, agonists of co-stimulation and inhibitors of co-stimulation. That's when CDLA-4 was the first modulated um, checkpoint. And I worked both on an antibody that blocked CDLA-4 and a CDLA4IG, which boosted CDLA4 signaling. So this, the antibody was good for oncology. The antibody was good, and the, sorry, the CDLA4IG was good for autoimmunity. And I was able to work in renal transplant and close the circle with my mom uh, by going back to my origins of what I was interested in, in the first place. It was almost like a full circle. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I was very lucky that I, I had all of these opportunities. And I think this is a theme that emerges from my career path and others is that you just have to follow your passion and things fall in place. Um, and, and importantly, I will also close the circle with prevention in this renal transplant experience because Working in renal transplant is when I met Dr. Lenny Ramos, our chief medical officer at Prevention, okay. who was a transplant nephrologist who was leading our renal transplant program at BMS. And many, many years later, when we invited her to join Prevention, she is the one who mentioned to us that the map was a good drug we may want to take a look at. And the rest um, is history of prevention. We'll talk about it, but just another example of how serendipity and the connections you make throughout your career um, can shape 
um, important things. So I'm, I'm gonna summarize. I have to. I have to just jump in there and say we're a huge uh, here at the Sugar Science. We're a huge fans of what ex you just said. Is that you know I guess serendipity favors the prepared mind, but also the prepared connections that you have. And if you reach out and have these connections in place, and you can turn to someone even outside of your discipline and ask a, a question, they may have insight that that even a colleague in your lab may not have. And that's why connection is uh, so important, particularly in this in this time where we are so disconnected completely agreed in fact when when i first called lenny ramos uh when i was already at prevention i had co-founded prevention i called her to ask her a scientific question about interleukin 21 for lupus completely unrelated and just chatting so what are you doing these days she said well i'm thinking of joining a company and I said, don't join that company, join us. <laughs> Great. Recruited her over a question. I love it. So completely agreed. Uh, networking is the most important activity you can do when you attend a conference. And now that we don't have face-to-face -face conferences, at least for the next few months, though they, they'll start again in the second half of next year. Um, this kind of Zoom conferences are really important to maintain that connection. So let me just summarize, because I'm talking too much about myself. Um, no, it's great. Continue. But after, so BMS um, was great for me to learn the ropes. Um, and and um, however, I, I ended up um, marrying another scientist uh, who works at the NIH. So I came back to Maryland to live in Bethesda. And uh, then I joined a company here called Medimmune. Medimmune eventually was acquired by AstraZeneca. Um, I had an opportunity to work in respiratory mucosal immunology, um, expanding, always trying to expand a little bit. Um, and then I, I realized that I liked smaller companies more than bigger companies because you can, you can have more impact. So I did my first startup, um, a company, company called Alba Therapeutics, uh, I was the chief medical officer, and it was working on celiac disease. Uh, we made it through phase 2B, eventually sold the product, and it's, it's been developed in, in phase 3. Fantastic. That's great. Yeah, it's currently um, in, in phase 3 trials. Um, but that was a very intense period. When you join a, a, a startup company, you have to work day and night, um, devote yourself to it. Yes, we, we, so, we're doing that here too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's the life of the, the scientist. So I, 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 the company actually um, was successful scientifically, but not financially. So in the end, um, I, I needed to take a step back and, and reorient my career a little bit. Um, and I had a very good opportunity to join a company called Centocore, who was looking for a head of early development in immunology. And Centocore was uh, part of the Johnson & Johnson family of companies, eventually became Janssen. And at, at Centocore Janssen, I had an opportunity to work with some really bright people developing anti-interleukin-12, anti-interleukin-23, anti-TNF. It was really, um, one of the best groups um, 
I've ever worked with. And I had an opportunity to look at multiple diseases in the immune space. But here is where big pharma um, fails a little bit society. Um, big pharma is not as interested in uh, smaller diseases that are not as profitable. And it's not as interested in going early in the disease process because it's always more um, profitable to treat a disease rather than to prevent a disease. Unfortunately, sure. that's the reality of the pharmaceutical business. Uh, and I don't mean this to sound a criticism. Somebody has to do what big pharma does. Nobody else will do what Pfizer has done, for example, with BioNTech. There's a reason for Pfizer to exist, and they're good at what they do. Yes. But you but also need BioNTech and Moderna. Yeah. So um, that's when I decided to just become an entrepreneur for good. And I, um, I was lucky to meet the co-founder of ProVention, Ashley Palmer, who is a very experienced businessman. Together, we founded a company called Cellimmune. We tested a different model, the entirely virtual company. Ashley and I were the only employees, and we uh, developed an anti-interleukin-15 for celiac disease and for intestinal T-cell lymphoma. Everything was virtual. We did a couple studies, and both showed good enough data we published in Lancet and Amgen acquired the company and that gave us the resources to start prevention to continue developing the virtual model, rapid go, no go. It was our motto, try to do small studies faster and to continue going earlier and earlier in the disease process by declaring probably for the first time that prevention would focus exclusively on early disease interception and prevention. I said probably we were the first company that said that as our sole goal. Now, we are not the first doing this. And in fact, at J&J, um, Dr. Bill Haidt had been proposing this for a long time. And I learned a lot from him at J&J. But we took that into prevention to do it faster and hopefully better even than J&J. Yeah. Um, we acquired a few drugs that we thought had the potential to treat early diseases. And we focused on T1D and celiac because those are, again, the diseases where we understand the process. We had um, learned about Coxsackie virus in the course of our celiac trials in Finland. A lot of science had been done in Finland the country that has the highest prevalence of autoimmunity in the world, and they have yeah. devoted a lot of resources. And we were able to uh, put together a pipeline around T1D. Uh, and T1D then became our uh, primary focus. Once we in-licensed and acquired teplizumab, uh, we decided to focus on immunoendocrinology and on T1D. Yeah, well, that is quite um, a story and a history, and I think each one of those experiences add value to where you are now. I mean, it seems from my 
uh, from where I'm sitting, you know, each one was almost like a building block to get you to where you are now. And you have a deep knowledge of, of um, both celiac and, and T1D. So with that said, and uh, that prevention is, you know, alive and kicking, what's going on um, at prevention in the field of type 1 diabetes? I know you have PRV031 and PRV101. Um, do you want to talk about each one of those? Uh, what's most novel about these drugs? And then I'd love to circle around to the press release uh, that came out December 15th for the CVB vaccine, which is really exciting. Yes, uh, thank you, Monica. So at prevention, we would like to cover the full spectrum of T1D. T1D starts when a genetically predisposed individual contracts an infection by, in this case, in, in the case of our focus, Coxsackie B. Coxsackie B infects the beta cells of the pancreas, the insulin-producing cells, because they express the receptor for the virus inside the insulin granules. They literally, the viruses use the insulin granules as the Trojan horses to gain access to the beta cells. Then the immune response by T cells to get rid of that viral infection leads to the loss of beta cells, destruction of beta cells. In most individuals that results in just clearance of the infection, you lose 5%, 10% of your beta cells, that's fine. Nobody notices this. But if you have the right HLA, the right decreased regula regulatory mechanisms, there are 40, 45 polymorphisms, genetic polymorphisms associated with an immune system that predisposes to autoimmunity. If you happen to have those and you get the virus, now you break tolerance. You develop autoantibodies against the beta cell antigens, insulin, and three other antigens. There are four antigens targeted by T1D patients with antibodies. At that point, we talk about stage one T1D because even though it's still preclinical, once you have two or more of these autoantibodies, you have the disease and you progressively will lose your beta cells inexorably. It's 100% of patients with two or more autoantibodies will develop T1D, but it can take years you progressively lose the beta cells. So it comes to a point when you have insufficient beta cells to maintain glycemia, you develop dysglycemia, that's stage two T1D, and eventually symptoms, stage three. Big Pharma only treats stage three. Once you have symptoms, they give you insulin. That's it. Prevention wants to prevent and delay the onset of clinical T1D by treating the immune system with a drug, teplizumab, which resets those other reactive cells, turns them into exhausted energic lymphocytes, which do not destroy the beta cells. And we can measure them, we can track them, and they are good biomarkers of response. This is one of the most interesting new pieces of information. And we want to even go earlier to primary prevention with the vaccine PRV101 to prevent the infection in the first place. So we are really trying to cover the full spectrum. And one of the most interesting areas of research as well is, could we even combine teplizumab, PRB031, with beta cell transplant to yeah. help people who have established disease? They don't have any more beta cells, but the problem is when you transplant those beta cells, 
to those individuals, the immune system will destroy them. You need to use immune suppression, but immune suppression for life is eventually is would kill my mother, for example. She eventually got her second transplant and she was okay for 18 years until due to the immune suppression, she died of sepsis. So immune suppression for life is not also a perfect solution. No. So we have some data that teplizumab with eyelid transplants led to tolerization of the eyelid transplants. And we would like to work with companies doing beta cell transplantation. So I'm, I'm gonna use this platform you give me today to make a call out there. Anybody working on beta cell transplantation, we want to collaborate with you. And I know that um, Dr. Melton and others are involved with your platform and we're some of the scientific advisors. We'd love to work with, with um, the possibility of treating established disease. So yeah, a, I a lot going on. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. We actually had a, um, a you know something we call off the record, which is sort of a private conversation with interdisciplinary scientists um, uh, regarding a certain topic, and we had several scientists on with us this morning from Europe, and that's uh, very exciting over there as well. They're doing a lot of really novel things in um, the context of eyelid transplantation. And so um, I hope that maybe some of those um, individuals will reach out to you as well because they have some really exciting work, particularly in Geneva, Uppsala, um, in Milan. So great. that's just a shout out to them. Can I just ask you, with the beta transplant, with tiplizumab, uh, how long um, are you seeing an extension of the beta transplants, uh, typical residents without uh, being under immune attack? Or is it just, you know, how long um, is an extension or is it just a really lot longer than you would expect the yeah. betas to be able to survive in the, in the um, implanted space? So this is a published study and it was a relatively short study. It was just one year. I think the interesting aspect of that study is that the, the subjects did not require as intense immune suppression and the um, eyelids survive for that period of time. But unfortunately, um, this, this is a study done before prevention uh, was involved with teplizumab and we don't have long-term follow-up. Um, today, the more interesting approach is beta cell transplantation because still islets, the availability of islets is, is scarce as, as you know, because they come from donors. If we can get off the shelf cells, and combine them with teplizumab with minimal or no immune suppression, that would be, I think, the way to go. Yeah, well, there's a couple of horses in that race, right? Sema has partnered with Vertex to try to bring that to delivery and uh, Sigilon and others. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I do wonder, you know, in listening to a talk the other day by um, David Harlan, among others, he, he brought up this fact, you know, at uh, 40 years after diagnosis of type 1 diabetes, 16% of beta cells can remain active. And his comment was, what kind of immune response allows this amount of beta cells to survive? That's a really interesting question, right? I mean, even if, you know, CV, you know, Coxsackie virus is one hit 
and really, you know, the cells, the betas undergo apoptosis, they expose GAD and zinc transporter and other, um, um, you know, antigens to the immune system, and now you've got these autoantibodies, and the immune system strongly suppresses any kind of res resurgence of the beta cells. Like, why would still some be functioning 40 years after diagnosis? Is it just the heterogeneity of the disease, or is it? And what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'll tell you my my personal hypothesis about this. Um, first, it is not just acute infection that leads to autoimmunity. That's not very clear. Only people who have chronic infection develop T1D, chronic Coxsackie viral infection. There, were, there was a, a very good paper in Nature Medicine, December 2019, a full virome analysis of the Teddy study. Teddy screened over 400,000 children for genetic predisposition to T1D, and of those 8,000 had um, antibodies and developed T1D, they looked at the entire virome, and the only virus which was statistically significantly linked to T1D was the persistent infection by enterovirus B, which is another name for Coxsackie B. And if you have acute infection, you don't, you, you did not develop the disease. So it seems that you need to have those beta cells permanently infected to constantly stimulate the immune response. And then the question is, but then why do they survive so long? Because you have regulatory mechanisms as well. And those mechanisms are very heterogeneous, as you said. There are children who don't have a lot of those mechanisms who develop T1D within months after the infection. Other people take 10 years, 20 years. It's gonna depend on the makeup and the balance of your regulation and effector arms in the immune system. And then there's a third factor. A lot of those cells, even though they're still alive, they're dysfunctional. They don't work well. And that explains why at diagnosis, you still have 30, 40% of your beta cells, yet you can't maintain your glycemia. It's because those cells, in the presence of TNF and other inflammatory cytokines, don't work well, don't produce insulin. Yeah. And that is why anti-TNF works in early-stage T1D, and the results of the TIGER study were presented recently. Yes. And that is also why teplizumab, our drug, rescues dysfunctional beta cells. And it was really extraordinary to see in the at-risk study of teplizumab in subjects in stage 2 T1D, the C-peptide, which as you know, is the measure of endogenous insulin production, not just stopped going down after treatment, but actually went up. There was a net increase in C-peptide production after a single course of teplizumab. Yeah. And that indicates that some dysfunctional beta cells have now regained functionality. And, and that's the difference with the anti-TNF teplizumab story is that teplizumab being a, a, an immune system resetting agent, you only need to give it for two weeks 
anti-TNF you need to give permanently. And that's part of the reason why Johnson & Johnson has um, decided not, not to pursue further development, which was a bit surprising to the entire community. I think when they said they were discontinuing development of golimumab in, mm -hmm. in newly diagnosed patients, because it's lifelong treatment with anti-TNF, um, while our, our drug only requires this episodic intervention. Right, which is better for, you know, for many reasons. What about, um, you know, has any, have any studies been looked at in terms of if, if patients have had type 1 diabetes, say, five years, 10 years, and they are given this sort of therapeutic two-week dose of uh, diplomazob, do they, is there any kind of recovery of functionality or even uh, lessened need for insulin? Are you aware of any studies that uh, show yeah. that? No, absolutely. Um, in, in all the phase two studies of teplizumab in newly diagnosed patients and one phase three trial called Protege, which has been completed already, there was reduced insulin use in the teplizumab arm versus the placebo arm. And in fact, in the Protege study, phase three, uh, about 5% of patients with newly diagnosed T1D came off insulin hmm. against 0% on placebo. It's a small number, but as you, as you pointed out, it really depends on how many beta cells you have left. And trials like Protege did not have a cutoff for C-peptide at entry. Mm -hmm. This is one of the things we've learned now and we've implemented in our current phase three trial in newly diagnosed patients called PROTECT. We have a baseline cutoff of 0.2 picomolars per milliliter, which is um, known to correlate with uh, persistent beta cells. So we, we are trying to demonstrate and Hopefully this will be the last trial in the newly diagnosed setting before we can submit to the FDA in that setting that um, we can protect beta cells, but you have to have some beta cells if the drug is going to work. Right. And I, I, do, I do need to say, just as a caveat, that everything I'm telling you about, obviously I'm talking about um, unapproved medications. These are all candidates. We have submitted the um, biologics license application for the use of the plusumab in stage two T1D that is now being reviewed by the FDA. And we are in the second phase three for newly diagnosed patients, but um, everybody should understand that these are still um, drugs um, that, that are not approved. Yeah, no, it's yeah. all the process. I think that you know the audience that's listening definitely understands that, and I think that this whole idea of really understanding who um, who is the patient that you're that you're dealing with prior to entering them into the clinical trial makes a lot of sense because of there's going to be many different um, presentations of this disease. So, for instance, there's been a lot of talk about how two years old and under, if there, um, the onset of type one and that age frame is, is different 
for this uh, than than the slower um, you know di the slower um, you know slower progressing to diagnosis and would you do you have any information or uh, data that suggests that one group one age group responds better to to plimisub than another this is a great question um, so in the in the uh, registrational trial called at risk or tn10 conducted by trialnet a single course of teplizumab led to a median delay of three years to the onset of clinical t1d in stage two patients so that's all comers all patients it was a okay. 76 patient trial okay then we look at all baseline characteristics, right? Trying to understand, are there patients who respond better than others? And what you see is that there are subgroups where there is a greater difference between active and placebo, a greater effect size. But it was always driven by the placebo arm converting faster to hmm. clinical yeah. T1D. And then we realized that Actually, the greater effect science was in those fast progressors, yeah. younger age, HLA-DR4, lack of zinc transporter 8 antibodies, and a lower C-peptide at baseline. Those four groups had greater effect size. But however, this is very important. The drug worked across the board in the fast progressors, in the slow progressors, the delay was always superior on teplizumab than on placebo and we could not identify any baseline characteristics that predicted response what i mean is if you if you are in a group say hladr4 which is faster progressor we know that at the group level the drug has greater difference with placebo but at the individual patient level an HLADR4 negative individual in the reverse group, in the opposite group, could still get three or more years of delay. Mm. And this was looked really carefully at by um, the Benaroya Research Institute. Yeah. They are uh, truly the, the experts in biomarkers in the teplizumab trials. Alice Long is actually one of our scientific um, advisors. Alice Long is incredible, um, yes. <laughs> and she she is the one who made I think the, one of the most important discoveries with her colleagues with Peter Lindsley and, and others. They discovered that while there was no baseline predictor of response, they did find they did find a predictor of response at three months post dosing, mm. and that was the presence of exhausted. T cells yes, in the circulation. Yes. And they found that if patients had over 10% exhausted T cells in the circulation with respect to all um, CD8 positive cells, those individuals did not convert to clinical T1D at all in the duration of the study. So there are subjects who have been clinical T1D free for seven or eight years already. And, and this is very important because now we have a biomarker that we think could be used to guide redosing strategies. 
Right. If, if a single course gets you three years delay on, on average, a median, what if you were to receive a second course either on a calendar basis or guided by exhaustive T-cells? Because when they drop, that's when they found that the, the immune, the autoimmune process is starting again. So yeah. it, it cannot make sense. It's it's almost like yeah. yeah no it's almost like coming in and out of remission and yeah. and um and I think that I mean if people look carefully at the clinical progression or or if they're a, were able to clinical progression to the late um, or the the people who get uh, type one later in life they may see that um, they may be able to trace this you know the the level of exhaustion coming in and out of remission. Exactly. There is a, another paper totally independent of teplizumab looking at exhausted T-cells in the natural course of T1D. And they actually looked with tetramers at the specificity, the antigen specificity of exhausted cells. Yeah. And the more pancreas beta cell specific exhausted cells, the longer it took for those patients to develop clinical T1D. In, in the natural course of the disease. So teplizumab is just a, a means to boost this natural regulation. Yes. I, I mean, I think this is, you know, really fascinating. And I like the, you know, uh, personally, I think that this, this new approach of go, no go um, could be very valuable as you're, you know, kind of dipping into these more personalized medicine approaches or even like personalized clinical trials, if you want to call it that. Um, yes. It just because it's, it just seems more efficient. And I think CPATH, we've speak, spoken to CPATH as well, and they're trying to guide people to develop clinical trials that are, I think, more targeted and more, um, you know, more likely to show something of, of real value than getting caught up in, you know, endpoints that weren't set up right in the beginning and so forth. Yeah, if I may, uh, you're absolutely right. For the primary prevention trials, waiting until somebody develops clinical T1D is not cost-effective. It takes many years. But waiting for development of autoantibodies is the way to go. And CPAF is doing all the regulatory work to qualify T1D autoantibodies for regulatory approval, yeah. both as markers of disease for enrollment, and also subsequently, we will look at the qualification as endpoints. But they do a great uh, work to, to help the field do smaller studies. Now they're working on a trial simulation tool to try to improve the design of clinical trials in T1D. That's a, an important work going on in parallel. I would ask you, what are your thoughts about this sort of just hypothetically? You know, do you think we'll ever be at a place where we can really nail down the clinical presentation of these antibodies? And maybe there's even, maybe there's even nuances uh, very early, just prior to the presentation of the first antibody, autoantibody, that could there ever be uh, a role for like a uniform uh, heel stick blood test for newborns to sort of see, oh, these individuals may be at risk for presentation of an autoantibody. Let's follow them as they do present their first one. 
I mean, I know GIDRF has just put out a new, um, uh, you know, a, a big campaign to get all, all people um, to test for autoantibodies. And, you know, it's like a $55 test, but they'll send you the kit. And so it's just to the general population. But I'm just thinking if we can go really early to a newborn screen, what is your thought about that? Is it, would it even be feasible, possible, or even something science might want for clinicians? Yeah, so first of all, um, we, we are proud sponsors of that JDRF initiative. We, we um, were the first corporate sponsor. This is a great initiative yeah. to, to democratize access to testing. And to be able to do it at home is really great in a time of COVID for $55. Or if you don't have insurance, for $10. And yes. it's sponsored. I to, uh, yeah, I forgot yeah. to mention that. That was an excellent uh, point. Um, so today we know that in the general population, one in 1,000 patients, sorry, one in 1,000 subjects have two or more autoantibodies. Among family members, one in 100 have two or more autoantibodies. So you start to see um, cost effectiveness, one in 100 at the cost of $55, you have to spend $5,000, $5,500 to find one patient, right? But if you can prevent one patient, $5,000 is absolutely worth it for the healthcare system, right? Oh, yes. Now, if you, if you move that to the general population, $55,000, I would argue it's still worth it to prevent a life of insulin dependence. Oh, yes. When you move into genetics, the problem when you move into genetics is that you need, you need to screen for 40 or 50 SNPs, polymorphisms, mm -hmm. to have a high risk of T1E. And the cost of that is much higher than 55 dollars you need to do genotyping um, if you only do hla genotyping it's more affordable and that is what is done in some screening approaches so currently there are two groups there are experts who think we should screen through genetics hla or full genotype and then only those will be followed and eventually tested for autoantibodies. There is another group of experts who think uh, it is more cost-effective to screen for autoantibodies two or three times in your lifetime. If you screen at age three and six and you are negative for autoantibodies, you have very, very low probability of developing T1D in the future. Yeah, wellness checks. Type yeah, exactly. So um, at, at prevention, we are um, currently supporting the, the second paradigm, the autoantibody testing, but certainly genetics, uh, as, as it becomes more affordable, uh, it might be a way to filter and uh, improve upon this screening process. Yeah, filter is a good way to say it. Well, I just, you know, we're really excited about all you're doing at Prevention uh, and also, you know, excited about the fact that you are reaching out to the community um, to proactively, you know, uh, encourage a conversation about 
you know, possible collaborations or even just touching base about ideas. So that's uh, I really celebrate that. And I wanted to um, just ask um, Rachel if there's anything she'd like to ask uh, Francisca before we wind it up yeah. here. Yeah. So um, I myself went through a PhD program, as many of our listeners are going through or have been going through, and um, I become became very familiar with the academic route and how you could be a professor, um, but not so much the industry route. So I was curious about any advice you might have for someone who's looking to potentially be a chief scientific officer of a company one day and what steps they can do to get closer to that potential uh, career. Great. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Rachel. I think my, my advice is just, again, to pursue your passion. And um, no matter how obscure your interests may be, you know, mRNA manipulation was super obscure 25 years ago. <laughs> and the, the people that today are the chief scientific officers of Moderna and BioNTech, they were the least popular PhD students in their <laughs> institutions. That's great. Nobody cared about what they were doing. In fact, you may you should go and read the history or the story of Catalin Carico, mm -hmm. the co-inventor of the technology behind these vaccines, and how she's really struggled at a great institution like UPenn to find a place for her to work because it was not very um, in vogue at the time. So this, this really tells you, um, choose your passion and then work hard. You have to work super hard to become a real expert and to get the network of connections that will help you later in your career. And at some point, you may decide, yes, you want to go to the pharmaceutical industry. And the pharmaceutical industry chooses scientists purely based on scientific merits it's all about your track record of publications and it's about your your vision it's about your ability to work in a team um but it's surprising sometimes i think for academic scientists to realize that basic science groups in industry are almost identical to basic science research groups in academia, the only difference, the only difference is that academic scientists have to choose the topic of their research based on grants. Mm -hmm. They may need to go left or right based on where the money is for the grant. And in the industry, it will be the, the senior management based on uh, strategy and based on um, the um, direction of the company that they will say, I need you to work on this disease or that target. That's the only difference. The rigor of science in industry is extremely high because there's no way to hide the bad result. It, yeah. it, because you, you have to proceed to the next stage of development, the next, the next stage, it will eventually be found out. So the, the rigor is very high. And um, in addition to, to these generic, generic comments, obviously there are um, opportunities to, get, to gain some specialized knowledge doing a master in pharmaceutical sciences. Um, it's all useful information, 
or for example doing a postdoc in industry i think that's a really good opportunity you you do your postdoc in industry and it's you you're getting both worlds you're getting the postdoctoral experience but you're getting exposed to industry and then you may decide you go back to academia or you remain in industry mm -hmm. um, today it's easier and easier to transition from academia to industry and even back before mm -hmm. Once you go to industry, you can't go back to academia. That's no longer the case now. There are great industry scientists going back to academia because at that time that may be what they prefer to do. It's, it's very fluid. And um, yeah, we go back to where we started. It's all about networking, working hard, and following your passion. Great, thanks for that advice. And it, I think it's good to hear that whatever choices you make they're not as solidified as maybe they had to be before and you can kind of transition in and out so for people that are interested in a position or career like what you um do what is your daily life like do you is it really busy do you have a lot going on is it mostly meetings i know prevention is really unique in that it's an entirely um virtual company and so I'm sure you guys were well prepared for a uh, event like COVID-19 where it didn't really affect you guys. But so if you could walk us through like a day in your life, I think that would be really interesting. Yeah. So um, as a scientist in industry, um, can be purely a bench scientist and, and completely the same as in academia. Eventually you become a, a lab chief just like in academia and eventually you stop working in the bench and just spend your day reading papers talking to people and before covid uh, going to conferences that's where you learn a lot and you meet people um, eventually if you become a chief scientific officer there are additional responsibilities um, intellectual property so you have to develop a patent state around the products because without patent protection there's no investment without investment the drug cannot get to patients you have to become a spokesperson for the science in front of investors um, we don't write grants but we're constantly talking to investors to convince them to invest in the company Mm -hmm. So a lot of investor relations and, and explaining what we do. Mm. Um, and, and the last is um, collaborating, collaborating with, with basic scientists. And, and you mm. mentioned earlier uh, the press release for our new clinical trial. Yes. You probably noticed that um, the, the, there was a quote there from a professor of virology at the University of Tampere, Professor Hioti. He is the inventor of this vaccine, and we met him in the context of conferences. And um, one one conversation led to prevention licensing the vaccine, and uh, we we work with him closely uh, to do basic science because prevention being virtual, we don't have wet labs. But the University of Tampere, Karolinska Institute, and other organizations in the Nordic countries are conducting basic research for us so we interact with them design the studies that uh, review the data publish so it's not all that different from 
being an academic PI. Mm. And yes, you work equally hard across both sides of, of the aisle here. Mm. That's interesting to hear that that there's a lot of overlap because I think I've heard from various people that, oh, they're completely different. Um, they're, I used totally different skills sets, whether I, when I was in academia versus industry. Um, but I, I would say that many of them do have some overlap, but it seems like you're indicating there's maybe a little bit more overlap than what people might think. So I was actually wondering if you had like a specific leadership philosophy um, that you kind of hold yourself to when uh, creating teams like you have been at Provention. My personal leadership style is, is to motivate by, by example. So mm -hmm. just to, to be the one who works the hardest, to be the one who, um, I, I help the team finish their work before I do mine. Mm -hmm. uh, I want them to succeed. And when you help people, people feel comfortable and they do their best. Mm and everybody wins. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's uh, a, a, an approach that works under certain circumstances when you have a good team and when you have um, a good plan that is working. Mm -hmm. There are times when my leadership style is not the best and you have to switch. If there's a crisis, you enter into crisis mode and a different leadership style is, is required to come out of the crisis, maybe more directive, less um, democratic. Mm. So I think all, all of these skills, you do learn in academia. Mm. Um, it's just that you, you have to be aware that they are tools and then you apply them in, in different circumstances. Um, that's, that's a really uh, unique leadership style I think I, I I mean I haven't asked a ton of people that question but it's something I haven't really like read in maybe some of the interviews I, I've come across so um, I really I really like that I, I like to think I help when I can too but hearing you say that makes me think about it a little bit more that I can maybe offer more of my time to help out um, the team. So my, my last question is, um, what is your vision for prevention bio? Where do you see the company in the next five, 10 years or so? Thank you for the question, uh, mm -hmm. Rachel. We would like to be the company that um, made disease interception and prevention popular, mm -hmm. that make, makes other companies enter the space. We want competition. We want big companies to say, let's start developing vaccines for autoimmunity. Why not? Um, and let's start developing massive screening programs because everything we are doing in T1D could be done in rheumatoid arthritis, in celiac disease, in lupus. Yeah. All, all of these diseases have autoantibodies in Crohn's disease, in Crohn's disease, you have antibodies against the microbiome seven, eight years before you develop Crohn's. And actually, the type of antibodies determine which type of Crohn's you're going to get. Mm. If it's 
rectal, transmural, it's, it's incredible. So why don't we start um, screening massively and identifying early disease and treating disease early? So if prevention can be the catalyst for this mindset to become more prevalent and for organizations to invest in disease prevention, I think that's where we will say we, we have fulfilled our mission and that's what we would love to do. Very cool. I think it will be popular. At least I hope it does become popular. Thank you yeah. very much. It, it's, an, it's a new way of thinking about things rather than treating something once you're you know, very ill with something is, is trying to prevent it from happening or at least mitigate some of the, um, you know, some of the, the, the march to the disease state. And I, we really laud what you're doing. We think what you're doing is awesome uh, in terms of pioneering in this space. And we um, will definitely share this with our audience and hope that you'll be getting uh, emails and connections from this podcast. We've so appreciated speaking with you, Francisco. It was a pleasure. On the contrary, thanks so much to both of you. This, this is a great initiative. I was very impressed when I went to your website and, and saw what you're doing. So thank you for doing this and for connecting us. Thank you again. Thank you.